You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. I'm Mason Pasha. This episode is part of a series that highlights Indigenous leaders in education and unpacks their research, their leadership styles, their connection to place, and their identity. Together with my co-host, Dr. Jason Cummins, we hope to spotlight the ways that the education system can and must learn from these leaders and their critical work. Jason, would you mind introducing yourself? Hello, everybody. I'm Jason Cummins. Uh, my crow name is Wajiagada. I'm a member of the Abzalagan Nation, and um, me and Mason are really pleased to have with us today um, Dr. Alex Redcorn. And welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You want to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. So uh, my name is Alex Redcorn. I'm a citizen of the Osage Nation. Um, my family is from the Wahakaling District, which is near Pahuska, Oklahoma, for those that might know about Pahuska. And um, I'm a member of the Tsijwashtagi, the Gentle Sky Peacekeeper Clan. And uh, yeah, I'm at Kansas State University as an assistant professor of educational leadership. And I'm also the executive director of the Kansas Association for American Education, as well as the chair of a new group called the Kansas Advisory Council for Indigenous Education. And I, I wear a couple other hats on campus and in the area um, and in the region, but um, those are some of the ones that tend to get the most visibility. Well, um, I'll start us off, and um, me and you are familiar with each other, but um, for our listeners' sake, um, tell us about your research, you know, your research interests. What really motivates you and what are you working on? So I actually started uh, my career as a social studies educator. And so I was a social studies curriculum and instruction person, um, uh, taught for several years in public schools, high school social studies. But then um, I really started to want to bridge uh, Indian education systems and learn more about Indian education systems. And I realized social studies, social studies curriculum and instruction really didn't prepare me at all for Indian education. And so I started kind of going outside the system and really trying to gear my work towards it. So when I pursued the doctorate, I really focused a lot on Indian education systems broadly and trying to figure out how we can improve um, our systems to respond better to the needs of native nations, peoples and communities. And so when I so I really now I'm an ed leadership specific type person. Um, I'm in the Department of Ed Leadership and all my scholarship is really rooted at its core in ed leadership. Um, but I, within that context, I tend to focus on tribal education departments and tribal governments, as well as systems type conversations. So how do we bend our systems or, or uh, rework our systems to work better for native peoples? And um, how do we interrogate our systems? How do we unpack our systems? But really I do a lot of emphasis on systems type thinking um, and those types of things and building programs to help people uh, be better prepared to do that work. Uh, and I also do work with, on the qualitative methods side, uh, qualitative methods graduate certificate. I teach qualitative methods and I've done a lot of stuff. Uh, I've done some stuff on autoethnography and specifically indigenous autoethnography as well. And then um, since I came up through social studies, I still dabble with some social studies type stuff. And I've also been bridging over to the field of rural education and trying to show overlap and. Um, find some synergy between the fields of indigenous ed and rural ed as well. Um, I'm curious, you were, you were kind of talking about the systems there. Um, in what ways would you say that educational systems are still working towards their original goals of uh, settler colonialism and assimilation? 
So I talk about this a lot when I do talks. Uh, people study history of Indian Ed and, you know, more people should know about it, but it's, it's more common if you're talking about Indian education that people have heard about boarding schools um, and they know about the old kind of kill the Indian, save the man approach to Indian education. And like I said, there's a lot of people that don't really know about that out there, but um, so that's, that work needs to be done as well. But when people learn about that kind of bring these kids in, take them out, out of their homes, um, put them in a boarding school, cut their hair, not allowed to speak their language, not allowed to practice their customs. People are really like, you know, that's terrible. We should never do that. Like we should never do that ever again and weaponize education like that. Yet I, I remember when I was making the transition to Indian ed and really starting focusing more, I was shocked when I learned the statistic that over 90% of American Indian kids are in general public schools. So I was one of those kids who moved off the res for opportunity in a city nearby and um, ended up in a general public school. But I always kind of envisioned like, oh, all these other native students and families have some other type of experience that they're having where they're getting to learn their language, getting to do this or getting to do that. And the more I got into it, the more I realized, no, there, there's not a lot. Of, they're not. <laughs> and so I always bring up the fact that, you know, we tell them like, oh, we should never do that stuff like we did in the past, assimilate them. But then we say, okay, well, 90% of American Indian kids are in public schools. So what are they required to learn for 12 years? English. Uh, do they have access to their indigenous language within their schools? Some communities do, but most native folks in schools don't have access to their own languages. They have access to Spanish, French, German, Japanese, but um, they don't even have access to learn their languages. Um, do they have access to um, their local tribal governance? Do they, do they learn about that? And most often, no, but you're required to take a U.S. history course and you're required to take a Kansas history course or a state history course but there's no requirements to do that. And okay, well, what about hi history? Like they're not allowed, there's no options for them to take their own history. Like I said, some communities really do have stuff, but for the most part, our systems are still on that assimilationist trajectory. Um, they're still mandating English. And even if they want to change that, because of those destructive systems of the past, it's, it's hard for tribes to have the capacity to actually fill the need, even if they did want to like all of a sudden start teaching their languages and all of a sudden start doing these things. So there's a lot of capacity building that has to be built up. And that's kind of where some of my work goes when I talk about leadership. I have um, some work that's really focused on capacity building. And I, I use the phrase liberating sovereign potential a lot. And the idea that, you know, on paper, we have these notions of sovereignty, but in reality, we have we're all still depending on state run systems to provide our professional development, to go do the work in these communities. And those state run systems weren't built for these native kids um, or their, their teachers working in their communities. And so how do we really step back and think about not just the kids in the schools, but the adults leading in the schools, the adults teaching in the schools, the adults counseling in the schools, the adults um, on the school board, like there's, because these systems have so long been geared towards assimilation, typically those folks don't have the tools they need either. When you say capacity building in this context, do, could you give like a tangible example of what that might look like um, in just like maybe one demonstration with one of your leadership students or courses? So, um, yeah, I'll get, let me uh, let's let's say I'm working for the Osage Nation. 
and I want to create my own school. Okay, we, we do have folks that are doing that. We're, we're, um, there's a lot of efforts in a lot of communities trying to build their own schools so they can control this, this narrative, they control the education system, that's sovereignty. However, um, they rely on Oklahoma State University, Oklahoma University, Kansas State University, and Kansas University to train their teachers. And then they, even though they have their own schools, like you, there's still this notion of certification within the eyes of those states. And so you have to go through and align those systems to work. In Oklahoma, they have a co-certification system. Um, in Kansas, we don't have a co-certification system yet with tribes to certify these teachers. However, regardless, you can't go to any of those universities and become an Osage language teacher and learn Osage language and culture, Osage history, Osage geographies. Um, you can go become a Spanish teacher or a German teacher or an English teacher, but you, you don't even have a mechanism for that training. And so therefore you can't expect them to come back and fill in like you would when I graduated from my social studies education certificate and degree Schools all around the country are built to have a middle secondary social studies department of some kind, whether it's middle school or, or high school, and you fill that role and it fits with the state certification system. You have to also, you're not just thinking about the professional skill sets, you're also thinking about the systems that align to meet those needs. And if tribal nations are in those systems, um, and if the training and professional development mechanisms to serve those needs are actually lined up for what they're hoping to accomplish. And so for the most part, we have a whole lot of systems that are, are built towards Eurocentric goals, not the goals of specific native nations, not just generic native, native Americans, specific native nations with specific languages, cultures, histories, governments, those types of things. If there was a um, school leader who was interested in working with a local native nation, or if there was a native nation who wanted to get involved in the education of their their students. And I'm thinking of public schools since, as you mentioned, 90% of natives attend public. What would be, do you think, some of the first steps? And um, how would somebody align systems? So you always got to lead with relationships, in my opinion. So relationships first. So quite often people are used to a grant coming around. They're like, hey, we should see if we can find a partner. Or, you know, like... Hey, we have this benefit we can get. Um, oh, I heard the tribe has some money. Oh, like set all that aside and just focus on, we would like to find a way to work together to better help our students. Um, because we realize that you care about your students in our schools and we care about our students in our schools as well. So first things first is just start with building relationships before you bring in policies, before you bring in all this other stuff. And so if you focus on the relationships and collaboratively figure out where can we find some synergy together um, and just small first steps, um, those things grow over time and that's what starts to grow. So relationships first, policies, um, grants, and those other types of things, second. Um, because what happens is tribes are so used to people coming at them like, hey, we need you to sign off on this, or we need you to, uh, we need a partner for a grant, but they don't really want a partner for a grant. They just want, you know, they, they saw that if a tribe signs off or if a, if a BIE school or somebody signs off, then all of a sudden they're more, they get competitive preference priorities or something. So prioritize the relationship and how you can collaboratively serve kids. Because the flip side of that is, uh, we, 
if there's no effort to build that relationship, then all of a sudden the only thing to, in, to start the conversation becomes something like mandatory consultation. Then all of a sudden you're invoking policy and laws like, hey, mandatory consultation. I have to sign off on that. I'm not signing off on that because you never talked to us about it. So it, it you start off on the wrong foot, even though those things turn into things over time, they can, but it's just much better to just be like, hey, I serve your students. Um, you have our students. Let's let's talk where what would you like to see in our schools and how can we improve what we do and the services we offer? Because those kids happy and healthy are everyone's priority. I'm curious about this piece with like how these students are kind of learning culture um, in some of the better settings and other places where they are not able to. Um, is this something that you found best as kind of like a similar to Spanish, like it's a class or is this something that needs to be more woven throughout the whole day for them? Is it like more of an interdisciplinary approach to kind of building this? That's a great question. So I see it as a gradient. So if you, let's say, let's say you got a school that serves, um, serves Native Americans and they've, nobody's ever talked about doing anything ever about changing the way they operate. Okay. So if all of a sudden you say, we're going to start Native American Heritage Month and we're going to have a Native American day at the gymnasium and we're going to do this, I'd be like, great, that's a step in the right direction. That is still an add-on. That's still like an extra kind of, Hey, we need to check this diversity box a little bit. It's still good though. It's, there's nothing wrong with that. That's great. Um, then they say, okay, we're going to add an elective. All right. That's great. Now we got another learning opportunity and all kids can go to this elective natives, non-natives, they can learn together. All right. We found this native teacher. He's going to teach the elective and now we're going to have a native American club after school. This is all great. So you keep moving that gradient around and then you say, okay, well, none of that stuff's mandatory, but they're required to teach us history, state history, all these things. And natives aren't just in history. So there's native artists, there's native scientists, and, and there is a field of indigenous science and indigenous STEM. And, and so what happens, that's when that gradient starts moving to something much bigger. But in the end, if all we think about when we think about teaching native culture is in scope and sequence type curriculum or cultural exhibitions, we're missing the much more important point, which is the culture of your school, how you greet students when they show up in the morning, um, how you what you do in the announcements and how the teachers work with families and how the teachers work with students. There's a native way of existing in different communities, and there's a there's a cultural protocols when it comes to those relationships and what do those look like and how is respect how does respect move through those relationships, and if that's not happening in your school every day and it being connected to language and, and the hallways around you, uh, language with some of the teachers who can teach it, language non language or you have white teachers that are trying to learn some of that language so they can bring some of that in there. It's really, that's a, such an important question because you have to move from like, hey, we have Native American Day. Great, great starting point. But that's like, I, it, that's tiny for what is needed. And so then we go all the way to the other spectrum. These kids are learning uh, their tribal history or the local tribal's history or the regional tribal history almost every day in every class. And it's not always like, now we're going to learn about Indians. It's just embedded into the things you do. Yeah, how might other communities benefit from this type of, I guess, um, inclusion, or I don't know if that's the word, of this type of relevancy in education? 
So I think every community is different, but one of the, one of the things that get, we have to be careful of is there are certain cultural protocols in certain communities that are just kind of off limits to who should know what and where, where and when, and that's within the community too. It's not just like, Hey, outsiders aren't allowed. There's like factions of things as you break down different cultural knowledges within a community. However, um, it, it's so simple when you make people stop and think about it, when you say, uh, well, we're going to make this native class. So our native students have something. Well, you know what, if, if you have a school that's 50% white and 50% native, most of them from a specific tribe and they all live in that same community, why aren't they all taking these classes together so they can learn and understand from one another? Because natives have been assimilating to Eurocentric schools for the last 150, 200 years or so, depending on what community you're in. So what, like, why is it, why is it so hard to flip that script and say like, they can learn our stuff. Like think about the value of um, all the non-natives learning about the tribal government that's in their community 10 miles down the road. Like what, then they become business leaders and then they're like, Oh, I know why this, I studied this in geography. I know why this is a checkerboarded map. And I know what happens when you have like federal sovereignty and land and trust. And so I'm a local business leader now and I know how to navigate that. And I know that I need to build a relationship with the tribe and then that they're generating economic enterprise. So, Hey, maybe they should be on the, um, on the chamber of commerce as well, because they're the biggest economic engines of the community. Like, these things are not hard. Like what? So like having all the non-natives in some of these classes, learning the language, learning the culture, learning about sovereignty is just a benefit to the community overall because everybody's supposed to live in that community. So therefore you need the educational systems to prepare you to live and serve in that community. I'm wondering like, as this is going on, if you have students um, who are from um, a certain tribe and they are no longer like in that geographical area, how would you kind of recommend that element if they're if they are living somewhere else and there's sort of like this interest in building culture and identity, but they're in different space? Like, are you catering to those in your room or like sort of the land that you are on? And how would you kind of parse that? Yeah. So um, early on, I said one of the things I like to focus on is tribal education departments. So when we think about like researchers and education and who they study and what institutions they study. You got people that specialize in all kinds of stuff. Um, so you got people, their entire focus is uh, superintendents of this type or rural superintendents is my specialty or assistant principals are where I focus most of my energy. So tribal education departments are where I focus a lot of energy and they're just not a vis- as visible across all the fields and subfields of education as you would hope because there are over 570 federally recognized tribes and a lot of them have some sort of education arm of that tribal nation. And so uh, those tribes, they typically are trying to, those tribal education departments have programs that are trying to serve their folks that are local as well as their folks that are states away, nations away. And so they have to come up with creative programming. Think Think how simple it is for a superintendent to just like, I'm in control of this district. I just operate in this geography. Everything within this district is governed by this one board. Okay, great. If you're a tribal ed department, you create a tutoring program, you're like, okay, so here's our local 
students and here's our access and our ability to get uh, access to them locally. But we have a thousand students in California. Okay, well, we need to figure out how to serve them. We have another 500 students in Colorado. How do we serve them? So because um, every tribe has their diaspora and the, their movement of people, and we've always been in movement trying to survive, adapt, all those things, these tribal education departments have to create a, a medley of programming that serves the on-res folks as well as the off-res folks. And um, that comes through scholarships, creative approaches to tutoring, Zoom language classes. That comes from frequent trips to different states. So our tribe has actually state associations in Northern California, Southern California, um, Colorado. And so um, they use those networks to try to reach people. And it's not always perfect, um, but it's really important to know that like these tribes are trying to serve their citizens and not all those citizens live on their res. It also really depends on the tribe's constitution and how they define certain things and how they earmark certain funding mechanisms. And so that's going to be a tribally specific conversation, but uh, there are several tribes that really try to reach out of state folks as well. I appreciated your, your, the chapter that you um, wrote indigenous perspectives in rural education. And I really like, um, I guess, the opening sentence. It says, education in what is now called rural America existed long before Europeans ever set foot on the continent. And it was just really helpful for me as a practitioner. But um, in the chapter, you explore the intersection of the two subfields, indigenous education and rural education. Um, tell us more about that, that intersection there. Yeah, so it's one of those things. So just like the status quo of it's easy for a school to offer U.S. government, U.S. Um, history, English, Spanish, because of the status quos of our systems, um, research subfields have status quos, too. And so what that was, was um, I happen to have a couple interactions with some rural ed folks. And that's their specialty. And um, after a while, we start, I started asking kind of questions and learning more about the field of rural education. And then I was invited to serve on the editorial board of the rural educator. And um, what that kind of turned into was I got invited to do a chapter. That, that chapter was a last minute invite. Somebody, they had, they had somebody, I don't know who it was, but they had somebody that fell through and they were like, hey, we need somebody to write an indigenous chapter in rural perspectives um, soon, really quickly. And I was like, uh, and I happened to get a department chair who knew Roulette, Jerry Johnson. He's the second author on there. And so I, I asked him, I said, okay, if you, if you can help me with the rural side of this, I can, I can bring the indigenous side. And it just turned into like a, hey, as we write this chapter, let's interrogate the intersection of these fields because we know that there are a lot of native folks in rural communities. So what we started doing is we, he's, he's really good at like going into uh, – big data and like finding numbers and kind of getting things in spreadsheets pretty quickly. And he started doing some keyword searching like, well, how often does American Indian indigenous or anything like that show up in our main rural journals over the past 20, 30, 40 years? And he started finding not very much. And then we said, okay, well, let's cross-reference the big data on uh, how the proportionality of native students in rural communities. And even though native students are frequently in that one, two, three percent depending on what community you're in, sometimes you can get up to 50, 40%. But if you're looking at state level, national level stuff, it's always in those low percentage numbers. However, you look at the proportionality of things and, and there's just a significant proportion of native students that are in rural communities compared to other ethnic groups. And so that whole chapter started going around that. It started, we started unpacking that. What does the intersection look like? 
Um, and we started realizing, yeah, we just have two fields, indigenous ed and rural ed, that probably should be talking to one another that aren't talking to one another. And so that turned into other projects. There's a Spencer project that's we're just rolling out. Um, it's in its final stages. That's really about equity and rural education more broadly, not just natives. Um, there's other work that's spun off that, but one of the cool things is um, because I was on the the editorial board of the Rural Educator, we've been able to do a special issue collaboration with the Journal of American Indian Education. As we actually have a, uh, we got those two editorial boards together, and we said, hey, we're going to do this joint special issue, and we're going to focus on indigenous rurality. And so we have two issues: one will come out in the Rural Educator next year, and the other will come out in the Journal of American Indian Ed. We have 20 manuscripts under review right now, so we're trying to. Um, get that towards publication. Um, but it's really intended to blend those fields and interrogate, try to bring more visibility at the intersection of those two fields. So, Yeah, one small piece of that work, and this is just my paraphrase, I, I guess from a practitioner point of view, was um, the fact that Native tribes had, um, in, a, in, a, in essence, paid for their students' education with the trade of lands and treaties. And but without that knowledge, a lot of times school leaders think this this impact aid funding is in lieu of taxes, you know, and treating the community like you don't pay taxes. So you, <laughs> but that was really, I guess, empowering. It yeah, really was. And and you know, there's also within that chapter, we we did that interrogation of the field, but we also um, rural ed really likes to talk about place based. Um, people like to toss place based, place based, place based. But there's this kind of disconnect when people broadly talk about place based. Because if you get into like critical indigenous thought or deeper philosophical indigenous thought, land is part of the conversation, not just like the um, placemat for all the other things to occur. And so relationality with land tends to be missing in some of those place-based conversations when you're like, oh, place-based education. They're talking about, you know, local workforce development, local community institutions, local families, local this, local that. Um, but it's never also like, and what is their relationship with the land as part of that ecosystem? And how does the actual land and um, feed that system as well. And so that was a little bit of where we were moving that conversation. Um, we kind of more started the dialogue around that and we're not the only ones to kind of point that out, uh, but we tried to like start the dialogue around that, but there's a lot more writing and scholarship I think that can occur on that topic as we move forward. Is there like a separate term, I guess, that you would propose in lieu of play space? Like, did you come up with a different kind of frame I, I did not, but you'll hear a lot of folks say land-based pedagogy. Um, land-based pedagogy is, is really one of the go-to terms. And I would I would point, if you started asking me questions about that, I'd probably point, you need to go talk to Annalise and Megan Bang and, and folks that they're connected to because they're really good at that. Um, they really stress that. They have an iSteam camp that's really cool. Um, and I always joke about, um, what do I say, uh, they're... I said their their ice team camp is a is a gateway drug to indigenous education, just as a way to joke around about like because th they they developed this model in a camp form, it's not attached to all these other systems. And so it allows somebody in a camp, like outside of K through 12, outside of all that assessment, all the fiscal model funding, all that type of stuff. And it allows people to just really rethink what education is and could be in this kind of multi-generational I-STEAM model, um, where it's a, it's just a more holistic way of thinking about um, 
indigenous STEM and science and bring it into uh, a pedagogical environment where land is part of that pedagogy. And so, um, yeah, I think that's, that's really where folks should go for more on that. I think. That's um, interesting because I, I have only been exposed to the, I guess the indigenous view of land-based. And so when I have come into contact with some of the other uh, literature, it's, it's, it's kind of eye-opening. So it gave me some clarification there and reminded me of a summer, I guess, science camp that we used to have. But we were very fortunate to work with um, some researchers from the local university. And we were able to um, teach Western science regarding water, like water table you know, water quality, water bugs, water cycle, all that. But then we taught the Absolaga views concerning water too, is, you know, how to maintain a right relationship with water and water is living and um, how to how to be respectful. So it was, it's pretty powerful stuff. When, when you have those moments where you sort of have like a Western science and more of like an indigenous science and you're sort of wanting to teach both of them, do they do they tend to like overlay and nest well? Do you have to sort of like do a prioritization or are they both just various lenses kind of? And I know this is generalizing and it's totally different in a lot of settings, but just curious if there's a response from either of you on that. I think, I think in general, um, it's always more complicated. And this is, this is like the crux of like how, um, you know, native folks, we're always learning from one another and relative tribes and everything before Europeans ever showed up. So it's not like native folks had some sort of like obscure purity or something like that before. But I, I always come from the place of like, there's a couple things in motion. That's always, we just always have to think about the complexity of these things in the current context. And, uh, science western science it's not like it doesn't have anything to like offer the world it's just another thing that people can like really if they just take a step back and say okay this is one version of how people talk about understand this well here's this other version that that's actually served these people well for the last two or three thousand years in this specific place you know how they survived here so they got to know it pretty well and they understand it and so like um that type of conversation, it, the, they can be in the same room at the same time. They're not, and uh, they're not always in opposition to one another. I, I think sometimes we get rooted in those like kind of false dichotomies of like this or that or either or. And so this is actually where I really came around, and I, um, I, and, and Jason's heard me talk about this before. I'm obsessed with using Osage ribbon work um, as a way to think about these things. Um, and every, I've heard other people use different kind of local contexts as far as like, uh, things like braiding or things like, um, uh, weaving, weaving rugs or we, there's, there's lots of folks that do similar type things, but, um, Gene Dennison, Osage anthropologist wrote a passage that I use all the time. And it basically said like, you know, um, when the Osage were reforming their constitution, you know, we have a tripartite system that we got executive legislative and um, judicial branch okay so like if we're going to quote unquote decolonize if we're going to really do this and exert our sovereignty how does all this work and how does it operate in the current context and so um she talked about osage ribbon work this idea that we used to trade um with the french and we'd get these really nice silk 
round taffeta ribbons. Um, typically, they're like the type of ribbons that would go around top hats. This is how it's been explained to me. And, you know, you got all these ribbons and they would cut them, fold them, sew them back together to be something that's uniquely Osage and fit an Osage aesthetic and an Osage way of thinking. And so you're taking these things from a European context and you're reworking them to serve what you need in the, in the eyes of what your current context is. And so I always think about that in terms of everybody's learning systems. Everybody's um, uh, sometimes when I'm talking about autoethnography, I'll call it their ethnographic ribbons. So like if I'm entering a space, like I'm part white, I'm part Osage. I was, I was a wrestler. I'm a social studies teacher. I'm an ed leadership academic. Well, I used to be a wrestler. I'm a little bit out of shape, but um, you're all those things. And that those ethnographic ribbons come together to form who you are right now, kind of in a way. And everybody's different. And so you can also think of that in terms of learning systems. So like if I went to a suburban school and then I went to a tribal ceremony and I went to um, an academic conference and then I went to the SIG that's focused on indigenous peoples, the special interest group focused on indigenous peoples at that academic conference, you're moving across these spaces and you're learning things and you're perceiving things and you're interpreting them. But you're constantly thinking about how can I rework these things to, to match that that Osage specific or indigenous specific aesthetic that's needed, um, that's built around a different type of purpose. And um, we are creative people that can manipulate those things to serve what we need. Um, and ed leaders, systems thinkers are the same way. And that reminds me of Dr. Lanny Realbird, and he talks about how our tribe didn't always have the horse, but when we did get the horse, we made it our own. And to do that with this new educational system take advantage of this educational system, but make it your own. And then um, the way we did that, Mason, at the ground level was um, we taught our students, and that was um, Dr. Simons out of MSU. She led this program. and But we taught our students the Absalaga view of um, water science in, in that specific contest, context. But then we also taught them to look at the big picture. And although these were grade school students, we said, um, this is our view, but we didn't write the state test. So when the state test asks you if water is non-living or living, go ahead and say it's non-living, although we don't agree with that. But this state test is written in um, somebody else's view. So we were really explicit, like we didn't write this test, but to get the right answer. I have a personal question. I was going to ask about the Killers of the Flower Moon. So Killers of the Flower Moon has been a trip. Um, it's really... You know, uh, there's stories about my great grandfather um, who was probably poisoned. Um, those are family history stories that kind of go with it. And it's it's been a trip because, I mean, you know, those stories, you grow up with them. And then like when you're old enough and you're like, you know, I'm going to read this book I've been staring at on my shelf for all this while. And um, for me, it was the deaths of Sybil Bolton. And my uncle Charlie also wrote a book on this, but like, then I started reading it as a young adult and I'm like, Oh man, now I'm getting details and nuances that I didn't get. Um, it was called bloodland for a little bit too, but the deaths of Sybil Bolton is like a, um, another one of those precursor books before killers of the flower moon. And then killers of the flower moon came out and the whole world starts hearing about this. And I start getting emails and texts from random people everywhere. Did you read that book? Did you read that book? Yeah. I, my, I got red corns that are quoted in that book and they're actually referencing my great grandfather in the latter sections of the book as well as an unsolved, um, 
murder. And um, I couldn't, I could not watch that movie and process it like any movie um, because I know the personal stories. I know the people like literally like two of the central Osage characters are red corns. Um, they look a little more Indian than me. I miss the, they, when they, when they were casting, I don't think they were looking for somebody like me, um, but you know, um, but they're in there. And then you, you, everything from like when the parade's going down the street and you see like three people in a row that, you know, and you see like uh, there's Osage extras all over. They're driving on the street. Like even what, uh, like, a couple of the deaths that they record and um i know that person like and i'm kind of shifting my interest into how are these going to translate into lessons in schools and you know there's also tension with like in oklahoma they are not real friendly to um anything critical um i mean there's it's it's a state that's been very you know, joining the the anti-CRT type movement, even though it's not CRT that's being taught. Um, so it's a really interesting conversation in Oklahoma where you have that type of um, policy and legislation coming from, coming down to teachers. And then you're like, well, so this movie's everywhere. Can we not talk about this in class? Like, are we not allowed to like, like tell, tell Osage kids like, hey, there was the systemic murders and they were a thing and they happened. And um, yeah, how do you, if you can't talk about it, how are you going to heal? Well, I'm just struck by like both this movie and um, I think it was like Watchmen, right? That did like the Tulsa massacre like depiction. Just these these moments in history where there's like sort of a, a group of people who are sort of always viewed in the past. And then the story where they sort of are like the most future forward gets like squashed out and erased because then you watch it and you're like oh they were like the most wealthy and we're absolutely thriving and we're totally like contemporary and then we sort of like erase it and i i don't think that's a very novel thought but i was very struck in both of those depictions um yeah and the the tulsa race massacre was happening in the same era you're talking about like literally an hour down the road and if you're in a certain part of Osage County, not even an hour down the road. And so um, these are the same ecosystems of people. Um, and this is what gets lost too. This is what you have to be careful of is your interpretation. Like, oh, the Osage were just rolled over again by white people taking advantage. Like, no, there's a lot of Osages that are making strategic decisions over the generations. And that's why that that land was there anyway. And that's why that minerals estate and everything existed. There's things that what you, what you have to be careful to overlook is Osage agency, um, really pushing forward and persevering through all the odds stacked against them. And so, um, one thing you will get, and this played in this, this is a little bit Osage buried behind the story. But um, if you talk to Osage folks, they say like, you know, um, one of our traditions is that we are forward thinking people. And so like there are things you got to let go and you got to move forward. And um, and that is what's behind all that as well. So um, letting go of things, moving forward. And um, our ceremony is there. Our Elamshka is there. Um, as I've been told to protect some of those ways. So, so those core values and those core things are in that ceremony, but you also got to figure out how to keep adapting and moving forward. And so there's this creative agency 
um, that you'll see in the Osage community, which uh, um, Osage scholar Robert Warrior um, did an analysis of uh, John Joseph Matthews and um, uh, who's an Osage author from back in the day and um, and Vine Deloria and like did this kind of cross analysis and he stressed the the value of intellectual sovereignty. And I've really leaned into that where we talk about political sovereignty, but intellectual sovereignty is that forward thinking creative agency that exists in our communities. And it shows itself in like, you know, like um, gaming facilities. I don't know. There's just, if you go to any tribal community, they're doing way more than operating casinos. They're like bringing bison back on the plains. They're tending to cattle. They're opening up their own butcher shops so they can feed their own people. Um, COVID really stressed that like, oh, your food lines are all clogged up. Well, we got our own butcher shop now. We can feed our own people. So like natives are doing that all over the place. And so it gets lost sometimes when people are like, oh, they got screwed over. Uh, Oh, they're sad Indians in poverty. Like, no, there's, that's that's the narrative that really dominates too much of what's actually going on in Indian country. What did you have growing up? <laughs> what kind of water were you drinking? Because you and your siblings are like doing well, and you're doing well for um, Native American communities and all within your respective fields. So what they put in your food? <laughs> <laughs> it's like well you know it was a mixture of commodity cheese and save brand save brand pop tarts because we didn't have a whole lot of money so we we definitely weren't drinking the bottled water going up. Uh, yeah shasta no rocky top it was rocky top cola <laughs> um no so if you if you ask my dad he would tell you it was my mom and so um and, uh, you know, and this is some of that complexity, you know, my mom was white. Um, and so, um, if you talk to my dad, he credit my white mother. And so she really instilled, um, a, a, a love for things and like for us to like pursue things that make us happy. Um, and actually my brother, the photographer, um, I remember my mom was a, um, kind of an amateur photographer too. And she, we had a white, we had a, um, not a white room, a, a black room, a dark room. Um, we had a dark room that really, uh, uh, I remember smelling the chemicals and like doing the old school development of photography and that, and now he's, you know, selling his 10 foot tall portraits to museums and doing a, a media company. Um, and, um, there's just a lot of that out there where we got exposed to a lot of different people and a lot of different ideas because we may have uh, left the reservation early. Um, I was in elementary school and, you know, because my mom was like, you know, you got, we got these schools up there that we can send you to and that'll help. But that's that navigation negotiation. They also, we just kept going back home like every opportunity. And so like we were never fully disconnected from our home community, our ceremonies, the people there. And so when we made it through schools, you know, and we had these like technical skill sets, um, to, to work across things and in like mainstream world, um, embedded inside that were still core values from our family learned through family and learned through ceremony. And, um, that orbit was still, um, I guess I would say an Osage centric kind of value system. Um, 
inside the technical skill sets that we learned how to do and navigate outside of that. Um, but no, yeah. And, and you know, what would be funny is if you, you saw the text thread between me and my brothers, we're, we're our biggest critics of one another where once somebody starts getting all uh, chiefy cause they accomplished something, the others right there to let them know who they are, like, whatever, dude. <laughs> I think it's very wise of your dad to give mom all the credit, but um, <laughs> sure it was both of them, and he was a, I believe, a tribal leader too. So. Yeah, he, he was assistant chief. He was uh, in our in our new government. He uh, ran for Congress, and then he was Speaker of the House, and he was assistant chief. So, so what that is is he also taught us how to be a politician. So my dad said, like, "Oh, it's all your mom," and so um, as <laughs> he knows how to he knows how to politic. <laughs> Uh, but I, I mean, I, I really do appreciate those comments, though. Um, it's 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 kind of an honor and humbling to hear that. So um, appreciate it. Well, Alex, this has been a treat. Thank you so much for all of your time today. Um, I think this is going to be a super awesome one to share. Uh, just really great expertise. And I, I would love for you to keep in touch with us on uh, particularly leaders that are going out into the the community. We would love to help share any stories that we can. Um, so whether that be someone in the classroom doing some of the capacity work that you talked about and sort of embedding culture in a more meaningful way um, or something else that you think of, just thank you so much. Thanks for tuning into the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason at GettingSmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much. 